You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This is uh, Father James Scholl, and we will continue with our introduction to political philosophy considerations. And we will do this by reading several works of Cicero. Now, Cicero is approximately 300 years uh, after Plato and Aristotle. He died in something like uh, 43 BC, I think. Remember, Julius Caesar died in 44, and Cicero died and was killed, actually, in the following year. So we deal here with the difference between Greek and Roman thought and Greek and Roman traditions and their relationship. Now, one of the great things in our tradition is precisely the way the Romans absorbed at least some of the Greek tradition. The Romans understood that the Greeks, in a certain sense, were intellectually superior to them. We'll notice in our readings today that Cicero sends his son Marcus to Athens precisely to learn philosophy, a great uh, incident in what we will take a look at. But also you have the difference in very the very conception, the very premises. I would argue that Greek philosophy is much more sophisticated, much more uh, penetrating in many ways, and its priorities are different from the Romans. The Romans, uh, by the time that we see them at the end of the Republic in, in Cicero's time, in the beginning of the empire with Augustus Caesar, we see the Romans as a classical polity, the Republic, the word Republic is Roman, is Latin, and the structure of the Romans is more moral-oriented than it is, you might say, metaphysical-oriented. And that makes a big difference. And indeed, there are some people who say that precisely because of the Romans' influence or uh, priority of the uh, political, of the moral, they are much more like the uh, Stoics and much more like the part of Aristotle, which said if man were the highest being, politics would be the highest science. And so in a way, the Romans were that way. Their empire, as we see later on, and we will see all the rest of the way through here, which is still with us in some way, their law, their language, their sense of brotherhood, their universality was one of the great inheritors and one of the great backgrounds also to Christianity. In any case, here we will uh, read uh, three essays uh, of Cicero. One is a speech, two of them are speeches, actually. And uh, one of them is a, um, a letter, really, or what would you call it, a uh, an essay, the one on old age. Now, Cicero uh, can be found... What I use is the Penguin edition, which is called Cicero's Select Works. And it is the one that contains Cicero's speech against Verres. 
It also contains his speech on old age, and then it contains part, at least, the third part of his great essay, uh, De Opitiis, which is called, generally in English, On Duties. Now, these are the three we will consider. Now, Cicero is the great orator. So, in, in Greek tradition, the great orator, the rhetoric, is Demosthenes. The parallel to that in, in Roman literature is uh, Cicero. Later on, there is a famous uh, Roman writer called Plutarch who writes a book called The Lives of the Noble Greeks and the Noble Romans. And in that book, he parall- they're parallel lives, as he calls. So uh, for every Greek, uh, there is a parallel Roman, and that's the nature of the book. It's a classical book, and it's one well worth having. Indeed, in it there is a life of Cicero, and there is also a life of all or most of the great figures in uh, Greek and Roman history, one of Julius Caesar and one of Alexander, for example, as parallel. That is to say, the idea behind it is that each civilization is going to produce more or less the same kind of character, and therefore uh, all civilizations in some sense are cyclical or related. Now, the first, uh, uh, again, the first consideration uh, that we want to make is that the difference between the Greeks and the Romans and their similarity, and then their, you might say, their fusion. So what we're going to argue is that what the Western tradition ultimately is, is a fusion of the Greek philosophical and literary and poetic tradition within to the Roman philosophical tradition. And into that comes the Old Testament tradition and the New Testament tradition uh, in the time of Christ and the founding of the church in the first centuries. And remember the church uh, found, the Catholic church is founded Uh, during the time of the Roman conquest of the Holy Land. So that the Christ's birth is under Augustus Caesar, that is to say it's mentioned in the gospel, and Christ himself is executed under the authority of of the Romans. And that is significant, as we will see. So... This uh, relationship then becomes something of a model about the relationship of civilizations to each other and uh, on what basis can we relate them. It is especially true after the conquest of the Holy Land by Alexander the Great. Then it was conquered by the Romans and uh, then, of course, later on, part of it at least by the by Islam in the uh, 8th and ninth century. So, the Old and New Testament, the, these four traditions coming together and becoming uh, dominant from then on as part of each other. So, there's part of us which is Greek, part of us which is Roman, part of us which is Jewish, part of us which is Christian, and then part of us which is the way that various people tried to put these three together. 
So put perhaps too broadly, the Greeks were more intellectually and cultured. The Romans were more practical and commonsensical. The Romans were lawyers and builders and soldiers and administrators, organizers. And so we'll learn something of the extent of both the empire of Alexander the Great and that of the Romans. These boundaries, of course, will vary over time. And it might be well to mention that Aristotle and Plato never thought that the empire, although they knew about it, and, and indeed it was discussed in the, after the Peloponnesian War, that the empire was really the best form of government. They found, found in fact, Aristotle didn't think it was a good form at all, and it never, it never, it never should uh, participate uh, or be encouraged for what is best in human nature. But we'll see some of that as we go along. Cicero stands at the point of Roman history where the old Republican uh, traditions are about to be um, subsumed into the um, empire. And in the empire of Augustus Caesar. Cicero is a most interesting character, perhaps the greatest pagan Roman philosopher and writer. He is, so the other ones would be, um, uh, particularly people like uh, Seneca, um, a juvenile. So there are other uh, important Roman figures. Uh, they have a whole literary and poetic um, and dramatic tradition of their own. They also include their historians. So the two great Greek historians are Herodotus, who gave us the history of the Persian Wars and uh, the great book Thucydides, a uh, book not to be mentioned, uh, min missed at all, which is the history of the Peloponnesian War and the great book on the nature of empire and war itself. And the parallels to the Romans are, are particularly Livy, who wrote about the uh, wars of the Romans with Hannibal, the Carthaginian. And Carthage, remember, was the early on the great enemy of the uh, great rival of the Romans. And then uh, Tacitus. Uh, Tacitus, his books on the histories and the um, uh, annals of Tacitus about the first century AD give us a good deal of insight into what goes on in the early stages of Christianity and also the decline or the nature of, uh, of rule within the empire, the, the way that the corruption and uh, disorder of the empire ruined, as Tacitus thought, the old great Roman virtues, the great virtues of farming and uh, soldiering and building. So Cicero stands uh, at the this point then of Roman history and uh, where uh, the Republican tradition, the, the, the Republic, the, the idea of, uh, of the rule of a city, the parallel in a certain sense to the Greek city-states. So Rome originally is really a city-state which through conquest and expansion uh, becomes an empire. That is to say it subsumes all of the city-states into what it tried to be another form, an empire form, in which it left some autonomy to the uh, city-states or the tribes at which it conquered, but they all had to follow the same law and the same rule and the same purpose. 
And Cicero, at least, then is one of the great uh, traditions and orators. So to know how to speak and to write uh, was to uh, know how to uh, imitate Cicero. So very often education in the West in many uh, centuries was simply uh, an effort to imitate Cicero's concise and clear way. Uh, you will find him, uh, I think, as we read him, uh, very eloquent and very moving. Indeed, he is still considered one of the greatest of the orators. You will see why on reading him. Uh, we're going to only read the one essay on varies, but you will see the power of that. It is still a most moving uh, speech against tyranny. Uh, so Cicero, we also had in, in, the, in the reading, had, uh, uh, has several letters. He was one of the great letter writers of all time. And indeed, uh, we know more about Cicero's inner life than we do of almost any ancient. The most uh, important one would be Augustine, who was a good deal after Cicero and indeed is related to Cicero. In the book, we have uh, the book of the selected letters. There, so there are those letters which are worthwhile reading. And he also writes a series of essays, as did Demosthenes, called the Philippics, which is a series of speeches to try to prevent tyranny. Though Philip of Macedon was uh, the object of Demosthenes' uh, oratory to try to prevent him from being a tyrant, and, uh, and generally speaking, Anthony was uh, the object of Cicero's uh, wrath. And that is so, it is a specific speech against tyranny. And this time it is against, as I said, Anthony. Anthony, remember Anthony and Cleopatra, Anthony and, and Caesar. Uh, there is, an, in that edition that you have, there is a, one of the Philippic speeches. I'm not going to cover it here, but it's worthwhile noting, and if you have time to read it. So Cicero has great style, and um, um, he addresses almost every kind of an occasion. So uh, the very different kind of uh, occasions that come up will have a speech that Cicero gives, which can be and have been a model. And very often, they're almost impossible to improve. So Cicero is a lawyer. He's a man of affairs. He was um, executed, uh, and his execution was poignant. I know his dates, that is, say, he, I think from 100 and something like 9 BC to uh, 43 BC. I would also suggest that you take a look at the glossary of this book and become familiar with uh, uh, Roman uh, political terms and terms that are usually part of modern languages, certainly of English. In politics, there is usually a parallel set of terms, one from the Greek and one uh, democracy, for example, is the Greek word, and one from the Roman, like the word republican, res publica, a public thing. Terms like dictator, triumvirate, senate, and so forth are Roman terms. Know that a senate, what a senate is, a body of old men, that is, say, of wise men. 
You will learn this by uh, knowing uh, the Latin of the address on old age, which is De Sendectute, which is the, one of the things we'll look at. So the old age address, or the old age then, the Senate, Senatus, Senectute, Senex, is the same word. The speech against berries is pretty much self-explanatory. It obviously is very well crafted and shows what is the force of law and, and constitution. It has become a classic speech attacking any abuse of senatorial and, more broadly, political power. It is very eloquent and shows the power of speech and persuasion at its best. The On Old Age Address is also a classic. It spells out, as well as anything, how death looks is looked on in the classical age. Remember, there is no Old Testament or New Testament here in Cicero. Cicero does not know this tradition. It shows that man can know about death by his own reasoning, by his own reasoning powers. But I included it here because it also is a political essay. Note why. The Romans are more of a political people than the Greeks, in some sense. Indeed, the fundamental difference between the Romans and the Greeks is over the nature of the theoretical order. Remember Book 6 of the Ethics and Book 8 of the Politics. There is a certain primacy of politics over philosophy in the Romans, and the opposite in the Greeks, at least in Plato and in Aristotle. You do have in later Roman and Greek, and later Greek and philosophy, and in the Romans, the Stoics and the Epicureans, who are much more uh, this-worldly oriented, and if I can use that term. So remember that Aristotle said that the happy life includes all stages of life, from birth to death. And Cicero spells out the scope of life out, asking the question of the condition of old age. This is a question that was already asked in the Republic of Plato, the very first question that Cephalus brings up. And we'll try to see that later when we come to Cicero, or to come to Plato. Civilization is to take up the most fundamental questions and think them and rethink them. And this is what Cicero is doing here. That's why we are reading him. So be sure to read the introduction also of the Grant edition of the Penguin series particularly the famous definition of law, which is found on page 7, which you should memorize. The power of eloquence, as opposed to force, can perhaps be seen by reading Cicero. So the, generally speaking, when persuasion fails, force is used. Or if you try to guide force or prevent it from being used, you have to use rhetoric, speech, on someone who might use force. 
civilization uh, is to take up the most fundamental questions and uh, rethink them. And this is what Cicero is doing. So here are a few of uh, selections of Cicero's citations, which will give you some of the flavor of what he's doing. So remember, this speech against Verres is against a man who was once the governor of Sicily, had he been a governor uh, in Asia Minor. He was apparently a very corrupt man, and he used his office to gain personal wealth at the expense of the Sicilians. It turns out that Cicero also at one time had been in Sicily and therefore knew the situation fairly well. The general opinion had been that if someone was wealthy enough, he could buy off all of the judges in the courts so that he would never be uh, prosecuted. Cicero set out to save the Republic by prosecuting Verres in the Senate uh, precisely for uh, corruption. And it was the jurisdiction of the Roman uh, Senate to um, uh, control the activities of the people appointed in the colonies to rule them. And so the drama of the against Verres speech is precisely how Cicero, as you read him, will use this power of speech to convince the Senate. And so this is really what the thing is about. It's not so much about the corruption of Verres, but it's about the corruption of the Senate. And that's why Cicero's speech is so classic, because it is not only calling the Senate to uh, pay attention to the corruption in Sicily, it's also calling it to pay attention to itself, its own corruption, its own willingness to take bribes. And so Cicero is using Verres as an indirect way to correct the Senate, or we might say any political institution which is corrupt, to, to reform itself and to do what it should be doing. So Cicero's speech against Verres, while it looks like it's mostly against Verres, a corrupt government, is really against the Senate, who takes bribes and therefore lets those who are guilty off free. And where does Verres get the money to do this? He gets the money by, by unfair taxes and robberies from the people over which he rules, which is in Sicily. And so, that therefore, that Cicero is trying two things to do, to one, to help the Sicilians, and two, to reform the Senate. So, as you read the essay, read the speech of, against various, uh, note these things, and note the power with which uh, Cicero uh, makes this point. So, against Verres, uh, which is on page 47 of your book, he says, you are expecting, you uh, expected me to say nothing about matters uh, as serious as this, that you mean, I'm not going to really talk about it, but when our country and my honor are in peril, you would be wrong to suppose that I did not place my uh, duty and my obligations 
before everything else in the whole world, to end the quote. So you'll notice that Cicero, in a certain sense, is always, uh, it sounds to us very much like he's always justifying himself, but he's justifying himself in terms of his responsibilities uh, as he sees them. So that he, so he's saying, you mean that, that you thought that I would never do this? And he's saying, no, I, I will. Then he says, uh, a little bit later on, he says, uh, on the uh, old age speech, for example, he says, as I believe the reason of why the immortal gods implanted souls in human beings was to provide the earth with guardians who should reflect their contemplation and their contemplation of the divine order in the order of and the orderly discipline of their lives. So this is an idea that we also find in Plato. The order, the internal order of our soul uh, will be reflected in the external order or disorder, the case may be, of the political and public order. And so therefore, the address of virtue initially has to be to the souls of each one who are members of a given polity. And in his second Philippic against Anthony, uh, Cicero says, which is on page 117 of your book, he says, you have driven these men away and expelled them, talking to Anthony. You boast of this. And yet, they are blessed beyond measure. There is no place in the world too deserted and too barbarous to welcome them and delight in their presence. All people on earth, however, however uncivilized, are capable of understanding that life could offer no more outstanding happiness than a sight of those men. Writers will continue to, for generation after generation, throughout time everlasting, to immortalize the glory of their achievements, that is to say, the glory of those who get rid of tyrants, uh, whereas the tyrants in their, on their side uh, get rid of the best of men, and therefore the best of men become famous because of their being executed by tyrants or by the city, which is the drama of Socrates. Later, to Lucius uh, Munasius Plancus, on page 49, he says, Believe me, Plancus, all the public distinctions that we have received, and you have received the most generous distinction that exists, will be universally regarded not as indications of merit, but as mere uh, honors or honorific titles. If you do not now identify yourself with the cause of Roman freedom and senatorial authority, the end of the quote. So he's trying to convince Pontius uh, that he should be on the side of the Senate. 
And in On Duties, page 114, he says, No phrase, then, is too great for philosophy, the very famous passage. No phrase, then, is too great for philosophy, which enables this period of inner obedient disciples' lives, like every other period, to uh, be lived without anxiety. So the purpose of philosophy, in that sense, is to live without anxiety. Then let us take a look uh, at the second essay that I asked you to read, the one on old age. This is a relatively short essay. It's an extremely powerful essay. And what it is, is in the form of a dialogue, and a dialogue with Cato, who is a Roman representative of a, an honorable and just man. And the question is, does old age have any use? Or is it something which is simply superfluous? Or to put it the other way, what is the relation of old age to human life? And so what Cicero does is he begins to tell us that old age, of course, is the normal step in the process of human life. And indeed, as we get older, we get weaker. Uh, our, our bodies do not uh, correspond to the power that we once had. And yet, ironically, we become more wise, we have experience, and we have something that we didn't have when we were younger, and we therefore are a reservoir of um, what later comes to be called wisdom or insight into human nature, not in the abstract, but in the concrete as something lived by this particular person. So Cicero goes through and lists all of the things that old people considered blameworthy are considered blameworthy. They lose their, their powers. Uh, they're no longer capable of doing this or that. Now the question is, what is the positive thing that they can do? So he goes through and begins to list the things that uh, you, can, you can do in old age. So in old age, he talks about retiring to a farm and to um, uh, recognize that you're no longer able to do what you were but you also recognize that that wasn't as great as you might have thought at the time. And he mentioned that uh, the old age, the old man should become old men should become farmers. He said and they should do what? They should plant trees and things like that. Well, why should they do plant trees? Because they'll never see the tree uh, before they themselves are dead. <clears throat> but this is the point: that old age looks beyond itself. It looks beyond is not only itself in this world, but in the next world. And the tree is symbolic of the fact that the man who planted it will not live to see its uh, full maturity, but someone else will. And someone else will be grateful that that tree was, was planted by someone uh, earlier than his own life. So Cicero then goes through uh, all of these uh, questions about the delusions and reasons why people think old age is bad. And he comes down finally to the point where he begins to discuss about the immortality of the soul. <clears throat> now, all of this, in a certain sense, reflects a similar discussion in Plato, although Cicero brings it out with more clarity, I think, and more um, eloquence, but or something that Plato uh, speaks of uh, more, more briefly. But in the first book of the Republic, one of the 
first figures we meet is Cephalus, an old man, and the very question is, is what is old age like, and is it uh, worth living? Now, Cicero, when he comes to the end there, will point out that a man is immortal, and that um, this immortality is something for which, for which he lives, so that the question of the immortality of the soul uh, is a primary question in the Greeks and the Romans, and not simply a, a religious doctrine. It's a philosophical doctrine, and indeed also a reality. And the purpose of the old age essay, it is an essay that I suggest if you have uh, grandparents or yourself or uh, elderly to, to read this essay very carefully with the background that this is written by a pagan it's written by a man who has great insight into human nature and that these observations that he makes are still perfectly valid in most ways. And that furthermore, that the, that the death of a human being is not simply, uh, it is a passing out of this world, out of the pulse of the Romans into, into uh, immortal life. But in immortal life itself, as Plato too said, it continues a certain activity of mind and uh, contemplation of the truth. So that the essay in old age is uh, something to be read with great care. It doesn't take too long. It is quite insightful. It is anticipatory, if you are young, of uh, the old age that you will live. If you are old, it is uh, insightful into what is going on now in your own souls. Now, one further thing to remember about this essay is that it, it's a conversation between two younger politicians and an older soldier politician. And the younger politicians want to consult the older uh, gentleman precisely in order to know what he knows. And they are aware that they are not totally informed about everything because they lack certain kind of experiences. They're not old enough yet to have experienced everything. And yet they are not stupid enough to think that they don't need to try to find it out. And who do they try to find it out from? Well, from the man who is considered the most wise of their time, namely Cato, who is the Roman parallel to Socrates in that sense. And so that the discussion of the old age essay is part of political philosophy in the sense that all polities, all states, are made up of, at the same time, of people uh, being begotten, of their coming into being, of their adolescence, of their middle age, uh, establishing families, begetting their own children, old age, and death. And so the segment, so you might say, of any polity that exists is always constantly going to have a certain amount of people who are about to leave it through death, just as any polity uh, expects from its younger members a uh, new life to come into existence, and that the polis, the city, the republic in the Roman terms, exists longer uh, than uh, the um, individual life of the human being. So that the polis is, in a certain sense, uh, meant to be, uh, if I can use the term, immortal or, or, or eternal, 
is intended to extend beyond the lives of one or two generations of human beings and therefore carry along with it the memory of and the traditions of uh, those who have gone before. So that living in a polity includes the, the knowledge and the experience of those who went before and who have fashioned the polity in the way that they have. And so at the same time, it requires the question of is there such a thing as real virtue and does our polity practice it? So the speech against varies would seem to indicate that it's quite possible to still understand what virtue is and not practice it, and it's still possible for men to recognize this and to try to call people back to virtue and try to call the institutions back to the purpose for which they existed, namely to deal justly with uh, their subject. And so the uh, essay on old age is a jewel. It is a classical essay, and one to be read with, with great care and often. And it is not something just for old people to read. It's more important in some sense for young people to read. It is an essay which reminds us in particular of the direction of our lives and uh, that what we are doing in this life is precisely to be making some kind of a decision about what we'll ultimately be. So the two essays that we've seen then, the one against Veres and the one on old age show the the eloquence, so to speak, the power of, of speech, the power of rhetoric that, that uh, Cicero has, uh, and that power of rhetoric is something that we ourselves can still be affected by. To read both of these essays, you know, when you read the essay on varies, you come away with the sense that, yes, this is the way to deal with somebody who is corrupt, to call them into question, not necessarily by force, but by eloquence, but by principle. And the same with, in a sense, with old age, that old age is a part of life, is the last part of life, and therefore it is not something to, in a certain sense, ignore or not know about or not recognize that it is the summation in the end of what we are for as indicated by the kinds of life that we have lived. The end of the first uh, discussion of Cicero. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.